0: All right. Welcome back to the TMBA pod. Of course, this is the show where we talk about building a lifestyle business where we believe doing so is one of the most effective ways to create more financial freedom and flexibility in your life. Here's the thing about getting more time, location flexibility, and of course, financial freedom in your life is it's really freaking hard. So let me put in a pitch for those of you who want to Mid range option, something still challenging but a little easier. Check out dynamitejobs.co. For the last 10 years, we've been talking about go start a business, and it's really hard to start a business. It's a lot easier to get a job and to get a job that these companies, these remote companies, are now providing these things to the workforce because they realize it's a competitive advantage and you can grow a great business and a business at scale with a remote staff and with staff that value things. Like location flexibility and time and schedule freedom. The same thing that entrepreneurs want, maybe the people that work for them want as well. So check out dynamitejobs.co and everything that's going on there. Now, on to today's episode, a few listeners have been asking me, why have I been doing the show solo? What's going on? Are you and the boss man at each other's necks? Has the boss man become a full-time father? Has he dropped out of the entrepreneurship game to pursue professional race car driving? Well, none of the above just yet. I'm not going to lie. I missed having Ian on the show with me every week. So uh, I thought, what the heck? I'm just going to call the guy up and get him on the phone.
1: Hello? Hello?
0: Hey, boss man. Welcome back to the pod. Are Are you with me?
1: Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, man appreciate you inviting me.
0: Rumors of our falling out have been greatly exaggerated. Actually, quite the opposite. But I wanted to have you back on the pod for this. I guess we owe an explanation of where you've been. Do you have an excuse?
1: Again, just thank you for calling me. My excuse is (laughs) I can't pick up if no one calls. That's my excuse.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The reality is when I'm on the other side of the world and we have a small window And it's the biggest downside of me living on the other side of the world is the chance to be on the horn with you. And so what happens is when we do the pod, we spend so much time joking around and doing these podcasts that sometimes we don't get to get the work done that we got to do so that we have something to talk about on the podcast, ideally, which we got some exciting things coming down the pike. We do. And so that, to me, was the priority. So what we decided to do is divide and conquer.
1: Okay. Okay. I buy it. I buy it.
0: All right, boss man, here's the thing. Today's episode is about a special place in our entrepreneurial journey. In fact, for me, it was central. Like this country, China, was a pivot point. It was something that I thought about every day on my commute to work. I would literally go to stores and I would look at stuff in the store and I would say, I wonder if that's made in China yet. Like that was the entrepreneurial opportunity du jour. Similar to how I'm sure a lot of podcast listeners right now are thinking, is this product on Amazon yet? Or I wonder if anybody's done an interesting Kickstarter about that thing. Or, so, you know what I mean? Like at the time, it was, we were still sending faxes. We we're just a few years off of like faxing stuff to these vague places in this vague country to get things made cheaper. Yeah. And that was an opportunity. And that sort of defined our whole careers in some way.
1: Yeah. It was made cheaper, and it was so we could own the supply chain, and it was so we could build a business around a couple of products that we thought might sell, and it ended up working out. China, for me, Dan, has a very special place. I'm not sure if that place is in my heart, though. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think of like what body part I would like to put that in.
0: <laughs> well, do you remember the last time we were in China together?
1: Yeah, I certainly do remember the last time we were in China together. You and I decided to do some factory visits
0: factory visits for us in, in those days, you know, back in the aughts, so to speak, like 2009, whatever, were as regular as, you know, SEO audits are nowadays. You know what I mean? Like, it wasn't this weird thing to go to our factories necessarily.
1: High-fiving at the the KTV entrance, you know, <laughs> the karaoke, you know, hey, good to see you again. It's been a couple of months. <laughs> those were not good days, my friend. I mean, at, at the time, it's exciting because we're building a business and so, you know, Dan, like us being there and writing a $100,000 PO, like that was a big deal, you know? Like you go to KTV and you eat the food that you don't want to eat.
0: Yeah, it was a big deal. We went to lunch. They gave you shots at lunch.
1: <laughs> Things changed. And we're like, I promise I'm better at this than you are. So if you want to ruin your day, go for it.
0: <laughs> well, try to change though, man, because like over the years when we were going back and back, like... The lunches got a little bit shorter. Things got a little bit more professional. I remember the the final time we went to China. I don't know if you remember this trip. I'm going to share some reflections with you, but one of them was I wasn't offered alcohol at lunch. (laughs)
1: You're a bit offended. Man, (laughs) things have changed.
0: (laughs) Like everybody was ready to get back to the office, you know?
1: Or maybe they had just learned, like we had been tagged somewhere, like these dudes do not like to play around. They're here to do the factory audit and like get back to the hotel. After the first couple of times of like drinking beer at lunch and even dinner, I was like, All right, this isn't <laughs> this isn't what I want to do here. <laughs> I do remember the last time that we uh went to the factory together and I don't remember why exactly we decided I think we were trying to like have some kind of renaissance in our business.
0: Respark the chemistry and like, hey, remember we used to do this just like old times kind of thing.
1: <laughs> I think that's exactly what happened, yeah. And so we went over there and I just, all I really remember from this trip is, is this one moment we were like 30 minutes in to like discussing some product in some office, you know, that was like white tile everywhere and like beaming lights coming from the ceiling, just like bright as day. And, I just like looked over at you, and, like I just saw this like face of disgust. like you were so disappointed in the decision you had made to come on this trip. Like it was wrapped up in your face. It wasn't just like you were displeased with that moment, like you didn't want to like talk about that product. Like, it was everything you hated in your face right at that moment.
0: <laughs> that was rough. I remember in that moment, I started constructing this piece in my head. That it was like my ode to China Factory Visits. And I, I ended up writing something called Seven Years of China Factory Visits. And it was almost like a piece to our staff. And I was like, look, I'm never coming back to this place. I'm never going to sit in this freaking fluorescent room and feel the warm air of the air conditioning unit and drink inexplicably hot, disgusting tea while people don't tell me what's going on, you know, and argue in front of me about this stuff. I just thought, man, this is not what I want my business to be like in the future. We're the lifestyle business guys. You
1: know? <laughs> 20 minutes of arguing back and forth in Chinese to turn you and say, this product is going to be very difficult to manufacture. We're like, you don't say. No kidding. Why do you think
2: we're here? <laughs> I'll
0: tell you this though, man. I'm glad we went through it because it was those experiences that ultimately made the business work. You got to do the hard things. At that moment though, I don't think we needed to go back another time. So I'll link up to that piece, Ian, that I wrote about that exact moment. There's actually a lot of lessons in there that you helped me out with that anybody going on a China factory visit, check out that post. It's still most of the points hold up today. But it's this idea of, you know, back in the day, Ian, it was all about, you know, and it still is like, how can we get things effectively made in China? But the conversation is shifting in the community over the years. And now it's sort of like, well, how can we sell our stuff in China?
1: I don't think if you've been to China, like it can actually compute like, just how many people are there. It is incredible. The amount of people that are buying products online there via their smartphones is just way surpassed what we're doing here in the United States. And it's hard to understand that because as the United States, like you feel like we're awesome. We're amazing. We've been the major driver of the international
0: tech leaders.
1: We're tech leaders, right?
0: San Francisco, New York.
1: Exactly. <laughs> you just think like we own this.
0: Here's the thing. In China, Ian, by a percentage of the population, it's three times the amount of total transactions by a percentage are happening online. And so China is this enormous opportunity. So today I had a chance to sit down with our man in China, Matt Kowalik of China E-Commerce Boost. He not only works with companies to help them manufacture in China, but with major product companies and some celebrities and helping them break in and market themselves into this enormous opportunity. And Matt, as we know, has a long background in China. He started out teaching English there straight out of college and now has over 10 years of experience there and speaks fluent Mandarin. So this conversation, Ian, a little bit of a backstory. As you know, we've been hanging out with Matt on a personal level for years. And when you're interviewing someone, that can be tough. I got to give props to my man. He he did a great job of getting to the core of his motivations and what he's learned uh, about running a service business in China for a decade. I think anybody that's had some ups and downs in businesses that is curious for adventure and has a nose for opportunities is going to enjoy this talk. I know I did immensely.
1: Dan, Matt is a lot of things. That guy like never stops amazing me in terms of like what he's working on and what he's capable of. One of my favorite things about Matt and uh, to give you an idea of who Matt is, is like Matt's the dude in China that no one thinks or expects that he speaks Chinese because he's like six foot four white guy. <laughs> <laughs> and then he'll either like let you know in the like the loudest, most obnoxious way that he like speaks Chinese and like you're totally busted for talking about him behind his back or he just won't say anything. And it'll be like the long con. <laughs> it must be fun, Dan, to be over in China looking like matt but speaking chinese
0: this conversation is going to be wide-ranging we're going to cover culture commerce and some gems about matt's trajectory like why he had a major rethink about the kind of business he wants to be doing in the future focused on this vast potential market in china
2: Mm I've always kind of been aware of that elephant in the room of selling into the Chinese market, right? You've heard stories of people going to China hundreds and hundreds of years ago and looking and saying, wow, if I could just get one, two, three, five 5% of this market, I, I'd be a king. And it's always been very, very difficult because the culture is just so fundamentally different, which I think is part of the attraction for me was going there and, and, and being in this culture that is so different in some respects, but also seeing very similar mindsets within Chinese and Americans. And I think that has to do with being in this huge, huge culture that's almost kind of suffocating for the regions around it. You can live your whole life and not leave Ohio. You can live your whole life and not leave parts of China. China's name in Chinese is the center kingdom, right? It's the middle kingdom of, of the world they've been 20% of the global population for 5,000 years since we had a global population, right? (laughs) A country like China that's dominated that region and has really been the one who sets the rules and enforces those rules, it creates a certain type of mindset with the people where there is this cultural superiority and it's not something where they're like, oh, do I you know, objectively think we're the best? No, it's just the way I was raised. It is that way. And also kind of this propaganda, right? So- In the U.S., whether we want to admit it or not, right, this propaganda of, like, everyone's a a unique snowflake, and everyone's beautiful in their own way, and freedom of thought, and, and all of these things, whether that's true or not, that's the message that's kind of propagated all the time. In China, the propaganda is very strong, and it starts from an early age of sacrificing for the greater good. Now, whether that's actually accurate and people actually want to do that, or if that's a tool that the government uses to kind of maintain control... Who knows?
0: Matt, you first rocked up one of this podcast probably over half a decade ago.
2: Yeah, geez.
0: And things have changed because it used to be that in our community, the only reason people would talk about China outside of travel stuff would be, you know, I'm going to go to the Canton Fair to find a product. I'm going to go to Guangzhou to visit my factory. Now it really feels like the conversation that you're starting here is what feels like the next five or 10 years is really going to be, which is... I got a brand. I got a product line. How the hell can I access the world's biggest market and try to sell into it?
2: It's the world's largest e-commerce market. So last year in 2017, it eclipsed a trillion dollars. So it's about a little bit less than twice the size of the U.S. e-commerce market. But what I thought is really interesting and what really speaks to the core of what I think is fascinating about the Chinese e-commerce economy is that In the U.S., that represents about six, six and a half, maybe seven percent of the total U.S. economy. And in China, it's already more than 20 percent of the entire economy is done by e-commerce. There was no hesitation to kind of plug all your banking details into an app and fire away because of the immense size of the cities and this dense population. Very quickly, people were like, well, yeah, maybe there might be some downside to putting my personal information in this app but I can order something at lunch and it's at my apartment before I get home. There isn't the same expectation to privacy that we have in the West, right? So in the West, we talk about freedom of speech and a free press and freedom of you know thought and, and religion. And that's never been an expectation in China. It's never been part of their day-to-day life. There's always been this kind of huge bureaucracy that controls everything. Are there
0: any other factors that you've seen to why are so many more purchases in China happening online than in other developed economies?
2: I mean, I think, you know, because of the time and then the rapid development of China, it kind of skipped over a lot of those things. Right?
0: Is it similar to like in Africa, a lot of countries, they never had landlines. They just went straight to cellular technology.
2: Right. So I would say that it's very similar in that sense with like the mall culture that we had in the 80s in the US, right? Where the mall was where people would gather and spend their time and people used to love doing that. So there are those kind of malls and culture, mall culture in China, and there are a lot of really big malls as well. But what we've done is kind of skip past of saying like that's the only outlet. Can you help
0: us to understand what WeChat is?
2: Yeah, so WeChat is kind of this all-encompassing Facebook, Uber, Apple Pay, Apple Wallets, iTunes kind of rolled into one. Last year, they surpassed a billion active accounts. Every Chinese person has at least one account. People have their bank cards and their government IDs tagged to their identification. It's a platform that we use a lot in marketing to China.
0: It's almost like you're using like a HubSpot or a Salesforce, except instead of plugging it into email, you're plugging it into WeChat.
2: Right. So that's one of the big differentiating factors with marketing into China is that there isn't this option for doing email marketing, which is so, so, so popular in the US. Chinese people don't really buy things with email. They don't really interact with email that way. It's for business. Even, I mean, anybody who's done sourcing from China, right? It's not a flow of emails back and forth, things get done on WeChat and voice messages and things like that.
0: How does WeChat change the environment in China?
2: It's been a big deal, I think, for payment, right? So Alibaba is one of the big rivals with Tencent. Tencent is the company that built WeChat. And so there's kind of been this race to get people to adopt a specific payment method. So there's Alipay and then WeChat Wallet. And just like we've seen, you know, the companies that were successful in kind of being that payment processor and facilitating purchases in the US, it's kind of a very similar method in in China is the one that can kind of be there and make it super easy. The Chinese tend to flock towards things in, in groups. Once something becomes attractive and it becomes the thing to do, a lot of people kind of join in.
0: Why is it hard for Western companies to sell things in China or is it?
2: The idea of the way that e-commerce works in China is there's a similar concepts. They're just arranged in a different way. right? So you just can't put up a product, put up a landing page, drive some cold Facebook traffic to that page and have it convert. The consumers in China want to dive into a product and really understand about it. What is the differentiating factor? Why is this better than the other options? You know, They want to consume a lot more content The most difficult thing for us to do is convince these Western brands, hey, you need to build this foundation of evergreen content for several months before you think about how you're going to sell this product. We have to see what do people want, how is this thing going to be shared, and how is this going to spread in China? And that's kind of led us to following more of this model of leveraging influencer marketing in China, where you're basically borrowing somebody else's attention and using the relationship that they've built with a specific, you know, a quote-unquote tribe and trying to subtly introduce your product to them as opposed to during the middle of a conversation, jumping in and saying, hey, check out this new soda. It's amazing. I drink three every day. China, it's much more about that relationship and respecting the trust that an influencer would have over their audience. All right, everybody. For Christmas, I bought myself an ad spot on the
0: podcast. I want you guys to go check out dynamitejobs.co if you haven't been there lately. I remember back when I used to have a sourcing manager that I worked with in China, and I still remember this email subject line he sent me one year. It was so surprising. The subject line was just this, new year, new job. And when I opened that email, it turned out that he wanted to leave the company he was working for and come work for me. And that was an enormous opportunity for me. So if you're looking for a new job in the new year, an enormous opportunity that can change your lifestyle. Over at dynamitejobs.co, we only list jobs from legit companies that are providing jobs with a great deal of schedule and location freedom. Remote jobs means you don't have to go to an office, no more commute, and work for legit, interesting companies. So if you want a new job in the new year, go check out dynamitejobs.co. So if you're listening to the show and haven't been to China, but want to get into doing business there, one of the places you're probably going to head first is Guangdong province, which borders Hong Kong and to its major manufacturing cities like Dongguan or commercial centers like Shenzhen and Guangzhou. So Matt has spent a massive amount of time in that area. So I thought it would be cool to ask him to give us a snapshot of what a first visit might be like.
2: If you do go to Dongguan or something like that as your very first city of China or Iwu or something, which is like the very low quality, low cost manufacturing centers, it can be very off putting. It's crowded and hot and busy and polluted. It's not a beautiful, majestic city like Nanjing or Chengdu in the West. And you go to a city like Iwu. And when it, there's heavy production kind of coming up, you know, before a holiday or something like that, you can taste it in the air, right? You can feel the, the particulate matter there. And it, it's really this kind of, you know, some of those places can be like a hellscape.
0: We were talking the other day and at the risk of generalizing, let's generalize a little bit. We're talking about the American mindset. How would you describe the mindset of an average Chinese person that lives in one of these manufacturing bases?
2: There's a lot of pressure, right? So if you're a a young man in China, one of the biggest things that's happened from the past that's kind of inescapable is the ripple effects of the one-child policy, right? Because of the rapid overpopulation and the inability to kind of feed all these people, the Chinese used to be capped to having one child per family. So if you lived on a farm in one of these towns in the 70s or something like that, and you had a, a daughter who probably just couldn't do the same amount of physical work that a son could, unfortunately, it was less desirable. So because of that, China has about an 8 I think 8% difference in male and female population. That's 8% of 1.6 billion. So you're talking about a huge differentiation in, in the amount of females per male. The fact that there is this difference, this big gap between the number of men and women means that the competition to get married has become kind of fierce. So there's a lot of pressure on these young men to find something, either find a strong, stable job and work in the government or go out and make something of yourself in one of these manufacturing towns. And the lack of intellectual property protection kind of leads to what I've kind of termed a forced socialism, right? A forced kind of a sharing of the profits because somebody can watch what you're doing. And if you're successful with it, they can just mimic it. That's what you see when you jump on Alibaba or AliExpress or something like that. You see a thousand suppliers for the the hot new toy for Christmas. Everybody's making it because there is no right to like, okay, well, I come up with this idea first, so I have the right to gain the most profit from that. That's never been something that's really existed in China.
0: A lot of people go to China and they don't like it very much.
2: I think people either hate it or love it. It's very divisive. What did you love about it? I think the things that I hated about it at first, I eventually ended up loving.
0: Do you remember your first few days in China?
2: It was the summer of 2004. We first flew to Shenzhen. And then I spent about two and a half weeks on one of the most famous campuses in China, Beijing, Beida University, where we kind of were taught how to teach English to Chinese students. And there's a very specific way, of course. China's they're the big-time SOP capital of the world. Um, they invented the meritocracy, so...
0: Standard operating procedures.
2: Yes. Test-taking is very important. Following a specific set of rules is, is important. So we kind of got the basics of teaching and some very rudimentary Mandarin lessons. Yeah, I just remember everything being so hot. It was so humid all the time. So it's the subtropical heat, humidity, it's crowded, it's busy, it's intense, it's loud. And I remember just kind of being a little bit in shock, but it was the first time I'd really ever been outside of the U.S. I used to have to bring two full sets of clothes to work every day because I would sweat through my pants halfway through my two forty-five 45-minute classes in the morning. I was like a rock star, you know, I'm six foot five. They wanted me on the basketball team, and the kids would scream and yell and jump on me when they saw me coming down the hallways. They loved me. I found out later it was because I wasn't disciplining anybody like the other teachers were. You know, for me, I'd I'd always been this kind of like you know just another Midwestern guy in Michigan. You know, it was nothing about my life it had been exciting up to that point, really. I just wanted to figure out a way to stick around there. I think you kind of talked about this too. When you first went to Vietnam, you were just like, how do I stay here forever? How do I never go home? And I think that there's, that's a common thread that a lot of people feel of just like, yeah, this isn't easy. It's not fun all the time, but damn, is it exciting. That's what I remembered about Michigan up to that point was just being like, ugh, it's boring. And every day is the same. And like, For whatever reason, when I was graduating university, I just had these flashes of like middle management, gray skies, five months of winter for the next 45 years of my life, and finally having a stroke at my desk one day and keeling over of boredom.
0: Do you remember a conversation where you were speaking Mandarin for one of the first times?
2: Not really. I don't think it was ever anything that clicked for me. I do remember. I have very... Distinct memories of the reasons why I learned Mandarin, right? So, living and and making your life was one thing that was easy, but talking to girls was the underlying motivator. I remember sitting there with my buddy Eddie, who is from Houston, and we were studying like we never studied before. It wasn't for a test, it was so that we could respond to these, you know, we would get these crazy text messages in characters, right? It's not letters, it's not an alphabet. And then you have to figure out what these squiggly lines mean. So, that you can go see this girl and hopefully, you know, hold her hand and maybe get a kiss. So, you had to learn all about what's the stroke order and what's a radical and all these little concepts of what a language is and what communication is. And I think that's something that was so fascinating to me about China and Mandarin is that it's a completely different concept of what language and communication is. Even when I go to the factories and are trying to make deals, right? We're not usually not conducting everything in Mandarin the whole time, but to be able to go to a restaurant and say, "Oh, what region of China are you from?" and to sit down and order a perfect meal for six people that has the right balance of vegetables and local cuisine, and then speak in Mandarin. The respect that you get from the obvious investment of time into learning their culture is huge. And it's impossible to kind of quantify that. When I try to talk to the sourcing clients that we work with, and they're like, well, you're 20 cents more expensive than this. I'm like, yeah, but these guys are going to break their back for us because I know how to order Sichuan food, right? You know, like I know how to do all these things.
0: Why didn't you continue to teach English?
2: Oh, I was just not good at it. I didn't like it at all. I thought it was just kind of boring. I also saw the guys who were, you know, 40, 45, didn't speak Mandarin and were still there teaching. And I didn't want to be that. And I knew I wanted to, if I was going to stay and travel the world the way I wanted to, I had to find some way of, you learn very quickly to detach yourself from getting paid an hourly rate wage because it can only scale so much.
0: What was the year that you started to identify as an entrepreneur?
2: I was working at this manufacturing company. We were doing skateboards and hats and stuff like this for extreme sports companies. And even at that point, you know, I was a commission sales guy. So I was making salary, but a lot of my compensation was commission based. So that would probably be the first real taste of it. But I was always a guy who was juggling three balls at the same time, right? I was doing that job and going to school twice a week from Shenzhen to. Hong Kong. And even before that, I would go to school in the morning, grab some lunch, go to my buddy's company and quote unquote intern, which just meant work for free for a couple hours a day in the afternoon. And then I would go teach English to lawyers at this giant Chinese company three days a week to pay the rent. And so I'd always been trying to earn enough money to maximize the leverage that I could get and go find other ways, right? Getting experience and learning how business worked and how manufacturing and kind of supply chain management worked while at that same time building a real skill set in, in learning Mandarin which made it. you could see every week made a huge difference in your quality of life of your ability to move around understand what's happening around you right so for a lot of people in in China I think something that people really can't stand about is if you can't speak Chinese it's almost like you're a ghost you don't really exist nobody's interacting with you except to like point at you and you know whoa look at that foreigner or take a picture or something and that is a strange feeling for a lot of people i think
0: what was your breakthrough then the entrepreneurial breakthrough
2: it was kind of dealing with my the last boss i ever had at this company kind of saying you know i would leave at 4:30 twice a week to go and you know trek 2 hours slept my way into central and in hong kong and i remember him saying oh you can't keep taking these Half days, and I, you know, kind of flew off the handle. And he's like, You got to pick one way or the other. I'm like, Well, it's not working with you anymore. That's for sure. So I kind of dove off the diving board without really knowing what was beneath me. What year was this? That was 2007. So just before the financial crisis, when all the easy money credit kind of dried up. So it was a terrible time to make that decision. And I was only halfway through my degree. So That was another interesting thing was I couldn't get a student loan to do my grad degree in Hong Kong. I had to pay out of pocket. So it was kind of like hustling and building this business and sustaining myself while trying to struggle through my first bits of of entrepreneurial experience. And so it was really difficult, but Shenzhen was a relatively easy place to be an entrepreneur at that time because just by the fact of being on the ground in China you could find something to sustain yourself you could monitor somebody's factory or kind of go do some quality control or something because nobody else wanted to be there you know it was too intimidating for a lot of people to kind of figure out how to interact in that environment you could teach english and make you know 35 bucks an hour cash it never felt like you were stuck from like a day to day aspect you know you you might have a ceiling a glass ceiling on what you're earning
0: I remember speaking with you in the very early days when we met. This was a long, long time ago. And I felt like in so many of these expat destinations, the struggle was always, oh, this is so great here, but how do we make money here? In Shenzhen, your experience seemed to be completely inverted.
2: Yeah, I think I was probably accurate. You
0: became an entrepreneur in what year?
2: Must have been 2007. And how would you describe
0: the way you've made a living from 2007 to 2017?
2: I think the best way I could describe it is by being on the ground in China and understanding how factories work. You're like, I'm sitting there in China. I've got a bunch of aspirin and my customers have a headache. And I say, hey, I'll give you this aspirin and I'll take on your headache for some money. You're doing the job that nobody really wants to do. Which is what? Managing a relationship with a factory, doing quality control. So you were like a sourcing agency. Right. Clients would come to us with a, a product or a design for a product and say, Go find me a factory you can make it. This is what my cost is now. If you can save me on that cost, basically you get to keep some of that margin. You know, it was kind of feast or famine. We were kind of lucky because we got involved with clothing manufacturing. And one of the benefits of clothing is that it is very difficult to to make the quality consistent. It's not like a plastic widget where you make a mold and you can pop out, you know, 10 million pieces and they all look exactly the same. That being said, it's difficult for a reason and it's very difficult to manage. One of the good things is that there's new fashion trends every quarter, right? Every season there's new types of products. It was one of those things where, you know, you get a couple of big purchase orders, you know. I remember the first time we did a hundred thousand dollars in profit in in one order and just saying, wow, this is great. And then, you know, it doesn't happen for like another year and a half after that. That roller coaster of up and down and kind of having to be so focused on the numbers and watching every single detail and that margin is kind of shrinking. It's easier and easier. I remember Two years ago, one of the big turning points was me was somebody came over and they had Google Translate on their phone and they would just say some words in English and turn around and show me in characters what it was. And I was like, damn, that's pretty accurate. And I, was, I saw my whole career kind of going down the drains and I knew right then I had to figure something else out. Do you really feel like
0: the sustainability of your sourcing agency is limited just because of technology?
2: I remember also thinking like, that Kickstarter and Indiegogo projects would be a boon for us that we could, you know, we know that these people had money. They didn't know how to manufacture in China and that we could get them to realize the value in having good sourcing agents on the ground in China. But what I didn't realize is that when somebody has a brand like that, really you're asking a lot to have somebody give you control of their supply chain of their physical product brand. That's the lifeblood of their brand. They have to, they should want to know all of that information but if I let them know exactly who the supplier is, eventually the supplier is going to try to go around me or they're going to try to go around and cut me out. And so that's kind of the the business that you're in. is You're
0: you are a middleman.
2: Yeah. You're constantly having to defend yourself and prove that you're adding value. They have customers that kind of get to a certain point and you become a line item in cost. And they say, well, I can cut out their 15% here and become 15% more profitable right away if they you know don't see the value in what you're doing.
0: Was there a moment or an event that happened that made you start to think I'm not going to be able to continue to make money the way I've been making money.
2: Yeah, I mean I think losing that a very big customer. We had a really big customer that we built up for a couple of years and things had been going really really good. They were making backpacks basically. It was a backpack brand and they were they were really smart. They would co-brand with a lot of these kind of interesting young brands and they had this kind of charitable aspect built into it so when they would Sell a bag at retail price, they would give away a smaller bag to underprivileged kids. And it was a really smart idea. And they got a lot of good PR through that. We had worked really well with them and kind of grew with them from very, very small up to, you know, this company that was doing a couple million a year in revenue pretty quickly. And the owner of the company brought in a new CEO who was a friend of hers from grad school or something. And this woman just from the get go, you know, we were the enemy. She constantly wanted us to kind of. Provide every kind of cost on every single detail of the product. And we couldn't get that from our own supplier. And it was a huge pain in the butt. It didn't add anything to their brand. It would give them much more control. And eventually they could cut us out, which is what happened. And we kind of overplayed our hand too. I thought, you know, there's no way they could manage this on their own. And we pretty much told them that, you know, we're not going to give you all this information. We're not going to show you who exactly the manufacturer is. Because we're making pretty good money off of them, and and like I said, you kind of overplayed that hand, and then said, "Man, it took us two years to get to this point where we're making really good money with these guys," as opposed to just being like, "Okay, we have to start over and build up our sales pipeline again to find more of these." I said, "I don't want to go through this again. I don't want to have this kind of heartbreak." I felt. How did she drop you? They found some excuses. You know, they would start showing up to do the final inspections themselves and inventing problems that weren't really there, and rejecting a lot, a high percentage of products uh, for quality issues. And we could kind of see the writing on the wall.
0: So did they do it via email?
2: The owner had the heart to call me on the phone, but it was again for this invented reason, right? So being broken up with doesn't ever feel good, but especially when you know that somebody made an excuse to kind of break up with you.
0: So what did you do next?
2: I think I went to Barcelona for like three months and just kind of wandered around the city and enjoyed it. I mean, I kind of felt like I knew what was going to happen. So I saved a lot of my money for the six, eight months before that. So I had a nice little nest egg that was kind of able to sustain me. And we had a a good, a decent book of other clients. Like I said, we had, have had some clients that we've stuck with for years, but to feel like you were a big part of building of someone else's success and to have that ripped away. It's kind of one of those things where you're like, okay, well, what asset are we building, right? Your business is just your relationship with the buyer and your relationship with the supplier. And I saw some people that had been doing it for decades and how difficult their life could be. You know, when the good times are good, they're amazing. And when it's bad, it's it's really bad. And I said, you know, I need to find a way to better leverage this skill set than just being a middleman. And just kind of being a line item of expense that somebody can say, well, I don't need this anymore.
0: It sounds like as you come to the table today in late 2018, you're still trying to manage or navigate your way out of that fundamental problem.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, it's one of those things where it's difficult to let go of something that's sustained you pretty easily for almost a decade, but it kind of hit that ceiling a little bit and feeling like, well, I can either sprint a lot faster on this hamster wheel or I can, you know, go find a different game. I tried Amazon for for two years. Everybody was saying, hey, just be on Amazon for a year, year and a half and you get your seven figure exit and it's great. So we tried that for a while and that kind of led us to, you know, what we're trying to do now, which is again, try to, Leverage that skill set, that understanding of of China to a different degree, and 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 we had to go through all these pain points, you know. And of course, I'd always seen China as this huge opportunity to sell in. It's always been this huge market, but just never knew how to do it. And then, you know, about two and a half years ago, they started opening up the economy, dropping the regulations. You know, my my wife now, her father had tried to sell wine into China, and I watched how competitive that is. I mean. You think about this idea. He had to ship all of this product into China, pay to manufacture the product, pay to ship it, pay for import duty, get it into China, and then test the idea and see if it worked. And now if you have a a Shopify site, you can tag a WeChat store onto it and drop ship into China. You don't need a Chinese company. You don't need a Chinese bank account. The kind of way that I see the Chinese economy opening up in the last couple of years in the direction that it's heading. I think it's extremely exciting. And to be the one that can kind of help broker people and explain how complicated things are in China and kind of guide people to success there, even in you know, the two years we've been doing it now, starting to get a lot more traction. And you know, I'm going to New York next month to sit down with my first $100 million company that would potentially want to work with us. And you know, that's pretty exciting.
0: How worried are you about the future of this new venture?
2: I'm more confident than in what I was doing before, right? So I think that the issue is not, will it work? The biggest issue is like, how long is it going to take for this to be successful? You're not talking about, you know, $50,000 deals. We're talking about quarter million dollar projects, right? They're very large. And that's one of the problems with China because it is this huge market. Like I said before, you can't have a product, throw up a a landing page, drive some cold Facebook traffic to it and be profitable in a month. That doesn't work that way. You have to build, you have to make a commitment to that market, understand what it is, build up a little bit of a reputation and have a presence. And then you can start testing things out. So getting someone to trust you to be able to do that for them in China is a big mountain to climb.
0: All right. Well, good luck climbing the mountain. Thanks, sir. thanks to Matt Kowalik for dropping by the show. Look, you can't take anything for granted in this biz, whether it's an algorithm change, a market switch, a technological advance. That's both the good and the bad thing about being an entrepreneur is that these things can all jeopardize what you've built, but they are also can be the next stepping stone you know, into your next thing. I mean, that's what makes entrepreneurship both hard and rewarding is this idea that something comes along and it's like, are you gonna to be tough enough to do something about it? Or are you just gonna let it happen to you? You know, and I think a lot of us have chosen to take this path because we don't wanna just let things happen to us. We wanna have a sense of control, you know, over our career, even if that means having to do some really difficult things like change direction, like navigate a life in China and learn Mandarin, for example. <laughs> I mean, there's this stuff isn't easy, man.
1: Talk about hard. I mean, uh after knowing Matt, right, it's like It's hard to uh, go up to Matt and say, wow, entrepreneurship is hard. Putting up a Shopify site is hard. When Matt moved to another country, spoke a different language, and did business over there, you know that's hard as far as I'm concerned.
0: And it's hard to sit down and share about your experiences so honestly and eloquently. So big ups to Matt for stopping by the show and being willing to share his story with us here today. If you want to comment or check out the links to anything we mentioned today, this one's going to be posted at tropicalmba.com slash china. Redux. And uh, good news for those of you interested in China. I know, Ian, you got an interview coming down the pike early in the new year focused on the China opportunity as well. So we we'll look forward to that. And as always, we will be back next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.